Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify for podcasts. And check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema for exclusives such as a discussion of film festival, Q&As, just various uh, short short film blocks, as well as maybe some early access reviews as well. That's patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. I'm also doing a live stream on uh, twitch.tv backslash Scuttle Lemur. And uh, there I just do like general discussions on things that are on my mind. I I have a few guests on with my current work schedule. It's kind of tough to uh, have a definitive... Uh, schedule up for those, but that is at twitch.tv backslash Sonic Cinema for Scuttle Lemur. Tonight, we are going to discuss the idea of parody films. Uh, what makes a parody, what the genre, the various twists and turns that the genre has taken throughout uh, its history, and uh, some of the, in three of the better known, if not better, uh, examples of the genre. Joining me tonight is a uh, podcaster who is uh, in charge of Crooked Table Productions, and uh, he's. I'm very pleased to be joined by Robert Yanez Jr. Thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, Brian, thanks for having me. So before we get into the topic of parody uh, films, and I will say, I'll, I'll go ahead and say, I mentioned it earlier on social media, this is, this is probably one of my some of my favorite favorite prep I've done for a movie, for a podcast, because of the fact that the movies that we're talking about are just really fun and have a lot of entertaining bits in them. Before we get to that, though, uh, Robert, how did you first fall in love with movies, and how did you first decide that you wanted to talk about movies? So I was always really big into movies as a kid, but it was really, I think, seeing The Matrix uh, in high school that really kind of opened my eyes to the art of cinema, as it were. And then from there, it just just became an increasing passion of mine following the awards uh, season every year. And when I got to college, I did some writing for the student paper, and that's where I started first doing movie reviews. So you get to, you know, mid-2010s, and everyone, it seems, has a movie podcast. And so I was like, well, my brother and I came up with the idea to start it. I had already had CrookedTable.com as sort of a place for, uh, you know, I actually had it before. It was more of a, a, like a writer's community kind of thing is what I was thinking with it. But it evolved into more of a movie review site. And so we launched the podcast just casually. And that went on for a while, for a few years. Then like late 2018, early 2019, I rebranded the Crooked Table podcast to focus more on bringing new guests on every episode, talking about movies they love. And now I'm, as you were saying, with Crooked Table Productions, I'm kind of rebranding the the, uh, existing show and launching two new ones, one that I do with my wife called Showstoppers uh, and a new show focusing on movie series called Franchise Detours, the original show Kind of a similar premise, but now it's going to be called Close Watch with Robert Yannis Jr. And those are all launching in July and thereabouts this summer. So it's it's been kind of a, a growing passion of mine. And I've been very fortunate to 
write for a lot of sites over the past few years. And that's, you know, it's my full-time job now is being an entertainment writer. So it's been really, it's been really kind of a weirdly calculated, but not calculated process <laughs> just getting to this point. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I think calculated, but not calculated is kind of a good way to describe a lot of us who write about films and do podcasts. I mean, to a certain extent, we some we basically start doing it for fun, and then it basically becomes something much more where it's closer to a profession for a lot of us. Right. Exactly. Um, so where where can before we before we get started, you you mentioned the website, but where can people uh, check out uh, your written work as well as the podcast? Yeah. So you can find uh, everything that I do for Crooked Table at crookedtable.com. Um, I also currently write for a website called Showbiz Cheat Sheet, so you can find that at cheatsheet.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter all the time. I just, you know, was just putting up a poll earlier the last couple of days for what movie franchise I should cover towards the end of the year. So it sounds like I'm going to be talking about Evil Dead in late 2021. <laughs> so uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Crooked Table for all that good stuff. Excellent. And uh, it's funny because of the fact that you and I both guest starred recently on... Uh, uh, binge movies, and we both collect, both between the two of us, we covered the top 10 mo high scores and movies of 1998 with Jason over binge movies. And uh, it was, it was, it was fun to hear your guys' thoughts on five to one. Uh, we, I, Jason and I did six through 10, and it's really fascinating to see how some of those movies have aged and how several of them have not aged one bit. Absolutely. I think it was also pretty funny that in your episode, you, you all selected Shakespeare in Love, and in mine, we selected Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> so it's like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. Kind of I mean, it, well, and the thing is, it's like, if you listen to, if you had, if you know the five from each episode, it's like, and they were the easiest choices in the world to make. Oh my God, so much so, <laughs> so much so. I, we had, for me, we had, I think, Saving Private Ryan, Obviously, easy yeah. winner. Uh, Godzilla from 98, obviously, which was an easy bottom for me. And then mm -hmm. Armageddon, something about Mary and uh, a, bug's, a life. bug's Life. Yeah. Which I'm all, you know, <clears throat> there I'm all kind of varying degrees of mixed on. Mm -hmm. But it was like the easiest pick of the week and bottom pick of the week that I've ever seen on yeah. the show. Yeah, it definitely will be. I mean, those those your your top and bottom for that one will be mine as well. I mean, very easily yeah. saving Private Ryan at top and then Godzilla at the bomb. I mean, I you know, it's like I didn't dislike Godzilla when I saw it in nineteen ninety eight. I absolutely loathe it now. It's just especially as I've gotten more and more to the Toho movies and then the Monsterverse, it's you you just see how wrongheaded it is about everything Godzilla. Absolutely, yeah. It's made by a bunch of people that don't understand what Godzilla is as a property, basically. Yeah. But um, we are here to talk about um, parody films. And when you brought up this idea of talking about this genre, it's like I will admit it piqued my interest immediately because of the fact that this is a genre, or subgenre, I should say, of uh, comedy that I never necessarily... It's funny because I... There are a lot of movies that sort of fit in this genre that I really unreservedly enjoy. And we're two of them certainly are ones that we're gonna talk about. And then the third one is 
I still enjoy it, but it's still it, it's kind of a rough one to watch now. But right. yeah, um, the reason I, I the reason I suggested that third one, not to spoil it, well, I won't say what it is, but is more because it reflects so much of what parody movies were considered after that point, and yeah. because that team, the team of creatives involved in that, have been so so consistently <laughs> part of that parody train, like yeah. before and after that that the mysterious film, which we'll get to. Uh, but yes, yeah, I 100 percent agree with you on that. So um, before before we dive into the genre, I I think especially in this case, uh, we we should probably discuss what the genre, sort of our personal definitions of what the genre is. And I would basically say parody. It's it's what defines a parody. I mean, you you'll automatically think of filmmakers right away when you hear this i it's basically a com a sub subsection of comedy that is poking fun at conventions of genre or genres in general or even specific movies i mean i think that's that's the easiest way to i i think that's the easiest way to discuss it to uh define it really yeah no i agree i think it, it, the more I found that the more specific the uh, the it's instance of parody, the more definable it is. Often, the better movie yeah. it is, just because it's more focused. We'll we'll get into, I'm sure, some of the mid like 2000s comedies, which were more like pop culture reference randomly in the middle of a scene, and exactly. that's supposed to be parody. <laughs> it's like that's not exactly what it is. But you know, you pick a genre. This is not one of the three that we we talked about, but just recently in the last week. Uh, I had never gotten around to the movie Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox yeah. story. And I finally checked it out like in the last week, not even for this episode. It was just, it was <laughs> streaming on HBO Max about to leave. And I was just like, all right, let, you know, my wife actually picked it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch it. Check that out. And that is so specifically a riff on Walk the Line. And I think that's why it works so well, because you know what set of expectations you would normally bring to that kind of movie that they're parodying. You, you know what, you, you know, they know how to subvert them. They know right. what expectations you're bringing and they know where to flip it in just the right places to maximize the comedic impact. And I, and I think that is something that's illustrated in, in, you know, in the, certainly in the three movies that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, I, I won't bring this up right away because it was funny. Like I tweeted about it and you responded and we were both in agreement when, uh, I, I went online to look at Wikipedia's page on parody films, and we're, we'll talk about the just insanity that some of these movies are <laughs> on this list. But I will say, actually, their definition of parody film is kind of spot on. A parody film or spoof film is a genre of film, comedy film that parodies other film genres where films as pastiches were created by imitation of the style of the many different films assembled together. And that's a fairly good definition of parody, which makes it even more baffling to look at some of the movies that they have listed here. And I, I actually just noticed another one that really baffles my mind in uh, Buster Keaton's Three Ages from the 1920s. The earliest one they have is Sherlock Holmes Baffled, which I haven't seen. It's from 1900, but... You know, I mean, maybe I could kind of see that. But yeah, the 1920s, it has Buster Keaton's comedy Three Ages, which I I don't know 
what that film would be parodying. And I mean, it's, I'm not saying it, you know, I'm sure there are references to specific type of films, but I don't think that's a parody in any way, shape, or form. They've got a shot mm-hmm. in the dark on here. They've got Doctor Strange Love, which, granted, are two of the funniest movies ever. None of, neither of them I would necessarily com- consider parody. They're just straight comedies. And then I will say, I, I will admit, I, I do agree with their placement of My Python and The Holy Grail and Life of Brian. I think those, those are successful parodies in a sense of what they're, they're parodying specific types of films by telling different variations on well-established stories. Uh, but yeah, it, you, you have Three Amigos, which makes no sense. Uh, I feel like a lot of these are just, I, I feel like a lot of these are, and we could probably talk about the, the, the distinction between these two, yeah. are kind of bl- blurring the lines between parody and satire. Yeah. They, they have 1999's Bowfinger on here. Yes. That to me is more of a satire <laughs> of Hollywood. There's nothing specific it's parodying. Um, and then even something like Scream, I feel like self-awareness and meta humor is not yeah. exactly the same thing as parody either. It's just there's a it's, a it's just a cornucopia of anything that feels like it's riffing on anything familiar is just tossed onto this list basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Bowfinger, Bowfinger's one is yeah. That's that is one that I agree just baffled me. I love Bowfinger, but yeah, it's not a, it's not a parody of anything. I mean, it's a satire, right. but um, you know, and I will say it's like some of these movies did make me think. It's like oh well, they're actually do the they, I've, I didn't even necessarily think of these as necessarily parodies, but in a way they really are, where you've got the Christopher Guest movies, especially Mighty Wind, This is Final Tap, which, yeah, do kind of fit into that parody idea, but also you have Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, which actually, the thing that I like about the inclusion of those is that they really tie into the type of parody that the first movie that we're going to talk about, which we'll get there shortly, and uh, in terms of basically being really successful genre films that are making fun of the genre but are telling their own story within that genre. And I think that's one of the things that works so well about those. Yeah, I think that's really also the key to having a parody film that stands on its own. Uh, both my wife and myself, we both grew up with Spaceballs way more than we grew up with Star Wars, yeah. for instance. And I feel like Spaceballs... Completely independent. Obviously, if you know Star Wars, there's a lot of references in there. But if you've never seen Star Wars or Planet of the Apes or Alien or all the other sci-fi movies that that movie uh, kind of touches on, it still works as a standalone story. It works as sort of a fantasy comedy adventure yeah. completely independently. And I think that's really the key. It's like, how do you how do you find that balance between being a parody of a specific genre, but also telling your own story? And if you're lucky, even having something to say, like you know, uh, shining a light or putting a mirror up against some ridiculous aspect of that genre of society in general. And I think that's something that like some of the best ones really yeah. capture. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, admittedly, there's some like, admittedly, I haven't seen Walk the Line. I just never really got to it when it came out in theaters. And there are others that I would get just mastered for not, for being the I haven't seen like McGruber. I haven't seen, and then uh, a couple couple weeks ago, people brought up Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping, and it's I just 
those weren't necessarily high on my radar when they came out, but I've heard nothing but great things about them in the in the intervening years. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that is the success of of a really strong parody, where it's like you you have your own story that you're telling while also layering on uh, references or just absurdist comedy. I mean, I think that's something that at least the first two filmmakers that we're going to talk about at their <laughs> best succeeded at. And uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the first one. It is 1974's Blazing Cells, directed by, by Mel Brooks. It's one of two films that he had uh, that year, the other one being Young Frankenstein, which admittedly Young Frankenstein is my favorite of the two, but actually I really like that we're talking about um, Blazing Saddles first because of the fact that it is an example of, like I, like I was saying with Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, where it's a, it's a spoof on genre, but is telling essentially a wholly original story with wholly original Characters, and I think, especially rewatching it yesterday for the podcast, um, that really came through to me. I think more than any other time that I've seen it. I think it's also notable in that it's it's really using the Western, you know, motif, but also confronting a lot of questions and issues about race. Yeah. In the in the seventies, you know, using this movie. Uh, the fact that it also kind of set the template for essentially the rest of Brooks's career. Mm-hmm. Just about every other movie he directed after this was, you know, a riff on Universal Monster movies or Hitchcock movies or yeah. historical epics <laughs> or sci-fi, you know, or Robin Hood. It's like it's literally all the way to, to kind of the end of his uh, directorial filmography, at least. Uh, it, it kind of set the tone Well, where... I'd say he's probably one of the masters of this because it's become such his signature. And it really, that aspect of his career really kind of starts with Blazing Saddles. Yeah, I mean, and I definitely, I would almost say he probably, I mean, I would say he's probably closest thing that this genre has to a master. I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of his last directorial film. I'm not a big fan of Dracula Den Loving. I think it goes for a lot right. of cheap uh, humor and a lot of cheap gags with regards to uh, the Dracula movies, and it's like th- that genre, that that type of film has been so well worn over the years that it's like even some of the best ones kind of uh, loop into parody anyway. But um, at the same time, I mean, I you you talked about Spaceballs. Spaceballs was easily one of my favorites growing up. Um, Young Frankenstein was one I grew up with. Uh, Blazing Saddles not as much. I didn't really see that until I was a teenager and uh, and uh, or an adult. And uh, but my mother was has been a huge uh, Mel Brooks fan forever. I mean, even it even goes back to Get Smart and uh, the great uh, spoof on parody of spy shows that he did with uh, Belk Henry. And um, he he and so he's he's somebody that's always been in my. Uh, life as a moviegoer for in one way or another and it, it was funny the uh fa- the fox theater um down in atlanta which is where i near where i'm at uh they actually for my birthday one year they on my birthday one year they had a double feature blazing Saddles and young frankenstein it was the 
40th anniversary for both of them, and so we went to go see it, and it was just absolutely awesome to see those movies on the big screen, and that type of big screen. Um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about Blazing Saddles, and I, I think, and this is, this is, it's one of the things that I think is really distinctive and unique about Blazing Saddles, be, and before you even, when you consider it even within Mel Brooks's career, is the fact that, yes, it's, it's, it's obvious that he loves Westerns in a lot of ways, but it's also interesting to see the way he he pokes fun at Western conventions like the old prospector, the 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 town, the the railways and all that stuff, and as well as really pointedly getting at the racism inherent at the time. And Right. One of the things that is so interesting about this movie that I didn't really notice until uh, yesterday is the fact that, you know, you do hear the N-word a few times in this movie. You don't hear, I think, but one of the things that's so entertaining about this movie and so interesting in the way it uses that word, it's implied more than it's heard. And when it's when it's heard, it's heard it's said with purpose. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's know, also, it's also said casually too, yeah. because that's just the way that, you know, people at that time, especially were, yeah, regarded, uh, you know, regarded black people. I, I think it feels like you're talking specifically about the scene where the sheriff is approaching. Yeah. Cause I mean, I think there's <laughs> like three or four instances where he tries to say it and yeah. he keeps getting cut off by like, by, you know, the, the, a gong or whatever the sound effect might be. Yeah, it's it's the church bell. And uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the prospector's exactly. saying it, it's like, just as he's saying it, the bell tolls. But also there's the uh, scene where um, Hedley Lamar, the, played by the great Harvey Corman, is Oh man, takes, he's so great in takes, that. Takes a Bart to uh, Lepetamine to show him, hey, here's going to be the new uh, sheriff of Rockridge. And Lepetamine almost says it and then, you know, wait, realizes he's walking with Bart, then goes back, gets Harvey Headley Lamar, and he almost says it again, but that time it's like, he, he basically is just saying the same thing he just repeated without going the distance on the word. And, um, right, yeah, exactly. it's it's the way that Brooks and his actors make use of that word in a way that's very pointed, it's always kind, it's still kind of shocking to hear them say it. And um, the, the fact that it's just, it's just one of those things where it, it is, like you said, it's very casual, but um, the way that this, this, you know, it's like a lot of people say it's like, oh, I don't know if you could make Blazing Saddles today. It's like people are too PC about it. It's like I think the right filmmakers could possibly make Blazing Saddles today. I think one of the only reasons that they couldn't is the fact that there's just not a place for Westerns really in modern movies. Like you don't really have that legacy of Westerns continuing right now to where this would be timely. This would be more of a relic. That's true. That's a good point. I mean, I think, I think there's a, to your mention of Popstar recently, I think there's a reason that's one of the parody movies in the last few years that is 
not resonated with people in theaters because nobody saw it. <laughs> I mean, I did, but most people didn't, as you were kind of referencing earlier. Like it, it basically crashed and burned at the box office, but people are, it's connecting with people now because it speaks directly to now, to mm. this certain kind of pop star, uh, you know, music superstar, to to fame and social media and, you know, you know, uh, posting things and getting likes and all like, like it's like, the it's really centric centered on the current iteration of what it means to be famous and to be loved and, and all that stuff in a way that like this is Spinal Tap did in, in the 80s. So it's kind of updating that premise. So yeah, Blazing Saddles, I, I, yeah, I don't think today's audiences have the same connection to Westerns with the exception of maybe, you know, a Django Unchained and that kind of thing that yeah. like the few that are out there. But uh, I think the closest to one that maybe tried the hardest to kind of do something like that was Seth MacFarlane's A Million Ways to Die in the West, which is not a well-regarded movie mm. uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, he kind of half tried to do something with the Western parody and it, it again, didn't really didn't really come together. So it's yeah. a testament to that. Well, and, and it's funny because of the fact that they also, on, on Wikipedia, they also mentioned Ridiculous Six, which is the terrible Adam Sandler Netflix Western. And uh, yeah, I mean, it... Yeah, it's it's just one of those things where it's like I I don't know that I mean yeah people would be shocked to hear the N word used in Blazing Saddles now, but the fact is that's the point of its usage is that people are so casual and blasé about using it that you you it really would it really is intended to more make you think about why you would use that and you know the the thing is it's like even do you get the impression that, like, the town really, you know, that the turn that the town makes with Bart is really genuine? I mean, there's not really much about that that turn where it's like, oh, you know, where it earns the ending of, like, it. it's basically, it's, it's basically a Hollywood ending, but I don't know if you really get much of an impression throughout the movie that the, the crowd, that the town turns and starts to really respect Bart. I mean, I guess they kind of do because he helped them save the town, but at the same time, you just, it, it's hard to tell. Right. It, I feel like it's also a little bit of a, an act of desperation, too. They're like, we need somebody to save us, and then he kind of rises up and saves them. And, yeah. and then to your point it, of it being a Hollywood ending, it ends that way because that's how Westerns would end. Three Amigos yeah. has a similar kind of, oh, all of a sudden they, they help save the day in, in the end. Uh, and then it literally goes into a Hollywood ending. Yeah. It literally, <laughs> like the last 10 minutes, they're on a soundstage. They're in Hollywood. Hedley Lamar goes to see a movie, <laughs> goes to see the premiere of Blazing Sun. That's where, and I think that those last 10, 15 minutes are either where you, you either break the movie for you or or it make it like transcendent. That's either yeah. where it like, it expands beyond what you thought this movie could accomplish or it jumps the shark. And I, and I think it's, for me, it's, it's, you know, for me, it's the former. I think, I think that really makes the movie kind of brings it all together and has it, makes it more uh, apparent that Brooks is, is doing this all as a celebration of the movie, as a celebration of the genre. Yeah. And it's coming from more of a loving place, not like, oh, look at these, you know, you know, not that they have those moments too, uh, most notably with Gene Wilder, where he's like, you know, morons. <laughs> when were they kind of tear down, tear down the townspeople? Um, but I, I think it's it's coming from ultimately a 
a place of appreciation for for the genre, for Hollywood, and for what it can do. And it's, it's it really is sort of in my mind, kind of the template for modern parody movies. Yeah. It, it, this one and the next film we're going to talk about are really like every movie since. 19, you know, the early 80s on has all tried to reach either either Blazing Saddles, that other movie, or maybe like Spinal Tap. I feel like those might be the three that kind of crystallize right. what the last, at least, you know, at least my lifetime's uh, attempts of parody film, uh, <clears throat> have what they've really like, kind of shaped them. And it, it's, yeah, it's weird because this is, it's one of my favorite genres, parody films, but it's not, it's, this isn't one I particularly saw a lot growing up. It's just one that I eventually caught up with, and and it, it's where it's where where you finally get the missing missing piece of the puzzle, and you're like, oh, this and these couple movies were what everything I saw after that were based on, and I because I grew up with a lot of the the films that came after these, the late '80s, early '90s right. uh, kind of riffs on on all of this. So, yeah, no, I I definitely agree with you. I mean, I think I think Brooks with. Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, as well as the other film, the next film that we're going to talk about, really, you, you are right. They are basically the modern template for uh, parodies. And because, and it is, and they are what everybody's trying to strive for. And, you know, I mean, it's, I, I, the reason, part of the reason Blazing Saddles works so well is because of the cast. And, I love the combination of Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder in this movie. And it's Absolutely. one of the best buddy comedy groups in I, I think I've ever seen. And it's because Little plays Bart very sincere, but with a swagger. And Wilder's the snarky one. And he's the one who's basically sort of like pointing out the absurdity of the town, the lack of intelligence of the town, and just sort of like, oh, well, you know, you, you probably, like you said, the, the scene where he's like, you know, moron. And it's like, what do you think? <laughs> One of the gonna... best gifts ever. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's why that combination of those two characters work. And it's because of the fact that you've got Little as a sincere and straight man, and then Wilder's the, as the comedy part of it, just throwing one-liners at you yeah and wilder wasn't even supposed to be in this movie he was friends with mel brooks at the time and mel brooks kind of needed someone in that role and had had been keeping wilder updated on on the project because they were close friends kind of like hey this is what's going on with blazing saddles right now so he was able to come come in like the next day prepare the scene and do that initial scene the first scene that he shot with Cleveland little was the one in the jail when he's in the jail cell and wakes up upside down <laughs> Uh, and interacts with with Bart there. Are we black? That whole thing. And <laughs> just with Gene Wilder and that and him and Mel Brooks, you know, the, those are it's it's really speaks to how well they work together that they made these two movies, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, released the same year. And I would say probably easily at least the top in the top three of either of their careers yeah. are both of those movies. Like I think it's kind of undisputed among Mel Brooks fans that like those two are, are among his best. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, he, he has, brings in Harvey Corman here, Madeline Kahn, even Dom DeLuise shows up, all of whom show up in multiple Mel Brooks movies over the next couple of decades. So it, it really, it really did kind of start something huge for him. Uh, yeah. And like I said, like I said earlier, without this movie, we wouldn't have the movies that I grew up as a, as a kid, Spaceballs mm -hmm. or, 
Robin Hood Men in Tights, which, you know, not nearly as good a movie as this, obviously, but nostalgic favorite for me. So oh, yeah. I, I think it's the legacy of this movie looms so large that mm-hmm. it, it's it's definitely when we were having this conversation about what movies to talk about mel brooks i think we were both initially like well mel brooks but which one uh, <laughs> and this barely edged out young frankenstein in yeah. that conversation and i think you know we could have easily have gone with that one as well so they're they're both kind of equally beloved and mm-hmm. i think rightfully so but i'm glad we went with blazing Saddles because it's a different type of parody than young frankenstein is Young Frankenstein's closer to the type of parody we're going to be seeing in our other two movies. And those movies, sure. and, and certainly the movie that we're going to catch next, you know, my mom has been, my mom's basically been, you know, I, I've talked about it a little bit. Uh, my, my mom's, you know, she, she's, she's been watching a lot of the movies that she loves over and over. And Mel Brooks has been a big part of that, especially Blazing Saddles, especially... Young Frankenstein, and especially High Anxiety. And, you know, mm-hmm. as I've watched those movies over and over again, it's, it's really struck me how versatile Madeline Kahn is in each of these movies. Like, in this movie, she's very yeah. hilarious as well as sexy. In Young Frankenstein, she's hilarious and sexy, but in a completely different way. And then in High Anxiety, she's basically a romantic lead, and she's still hilarious. And it's interesting to see the different types of characters that her and Mel Brooks were able to bring out of her. And she's she's one of the funniest people ever. I mean, and I, I think my first real uh, appreciation for her came from Clue in 1985, yeah, but same. um, yeah. I mean, you you see her in these three movies that she made with Mel Brooks, and it's just, it's there's something very you can see how very special she was as a performer and somebody who really understood the ability to do somebody either you know very smart or maybe very a little flighty as I think Lily von Stupp is in this movie, but also make her engaging as well. <laughs> I mean, she got an Oscar nomination for this. That's how, <laughs> how much of an impact she made on this, uh, and yeah. on this movie. And, and it, she's, I, I, every time I watch it and she shows up, I think maybe you know, roughly halfway through, I'm still surprised by how little screen time she actually has and how memorable her every moment she's on screen is. Yeah. It's, it's a strange <laughs> differential. I, I would say she's in, what, maybe 10 minutes, something? Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a lot of focus. Yeah. And yet every second she's got, I mean, she's got the big number, the uh, I'm so tired yeah. number there, the, the, which is hilarious, her big entrance scene. Uh, she's got the controversial scene with Bart. Yeah. Wed woes, how romantic. All that, <laughs> which, is, which is hilarious. It's, it, it's, yeah, she's amazing in this. And, and they, they formed a real partnership off of the back of this film as well, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, and Harvey Korman as uh, Hedley Lamar is just absolutely wonderful and evil, but also just really engaging and hilarious as well. And, I mean, you know, between this and High Anxiety, it's, it's funny to see him play sort of villains for Mel Brooks, yeah. but also be just completely hysterical and it's 
like you know when when they're doing the lineup of the bad guys that are trying to sign up to you know take out the city <laughs> of Rockridge. It's like you know we raced, we ran, what was it? We did a kale run, and it's like not really. And then it's like through the Vatican. It's like kinky, and the way he says that <laughs> is just absolutely hilarious. Uh, Slim, Pick- I'm, it's it's yeah. Go ahead. Uh, and and Slim Pickens is a delight. And it's like I would not have if I didn't see his name in the credits, I would not have pictured him as the same person in Doctor Strange Love. It's like I would not have guessed that those two were the exact same person, except the voice is just completely similar. Yeah, yeah. The casting is on point. I think that's that's basically what we're trying to get at here. And I wanted to also give my own little shout out to Harvey Corman. Like he has a scene in this movie where he's talking about getting an Oscar nomination for best supporting actor, (laughs) which unfortunately he didn't get. And I think he kind of deserves. Yeah. One of my my favorite moments with him is when he's telling Taggart all the different kinds of people he wants, uh, (laughs) you know, to, to head to the town. And he's like, rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters. And when he gets, it's right around when he starts getting to the muggers, buggerers, bushwhackers, (laughs) hornswogglers, like, that I'm just like completely losing it. Uh, he's he's completely goes big in the best way possible. And honestly, as much as I love Cleveland Little and Gene Wilder and Madeline Kahn, I almost want to say Harvey Corman's my MVP of this movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it, it's 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 like a really close four way race between those those four mm-hmm. actors. No, and yeah, Corman is absolutely wonderful in here. Yeah, the the scene where he's saying almost certainly risking is. Oscar nomination for best supporting actor as he's trying to pump up the uh the the crowd the, of people he's gotten to take care of Rockridge but there there're just so many wonderful scenes in this movie it's like you you've got Mongo the the campfire scene it's hilarious because of the fact that that scene's just built completely out of special effects and it's yeah. the timing of those sound effects that just completely makes that scene work. Alex Karras' Mongo is just wonderful and has one of the most, has a, probably the most iconic thing of physical comedy where he beats, he punches the horse. And then probably the most (laughs) iconic line in the movie where he says, Mongo is just pawn in game of life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, even even smaller roles like that, they they really, it's... It's not often that you see a comedy where every single role is perfectly cast. And if you mess up one piece on the board, you're gonna end up with a drastically different, far less successful mm-hmm. movie. And I and I feel like this is one of those, you know, it's cliche to say lightning in a bottle, but this is one of those. And and Mel Brooks has uh, has had a few of those in his career. I think he just, when he finds someone that's that's really special in the talent that they have, like a Madeline Kahn, like a Harvey Corman, like a Gene Wilder, he latches on and he's like, well, I'm going to put you in as many movies as I possibly can. And I think, you know, he's been fortunate enough to have a few movies where they have that same kind of magic chemistry among the cast. Yeah, I mean, you look at Young Frankenstein, which adds Terry Garr, Peter Boyle, and Gene Hackman to, and as well as uh, Marty Feldman. You have High Anxiety, which has Cloris Leachman and Young Frankenstein famously has Cloris Leachman as well. I mean, even in Spaceballs, you have Bill Pullman and 
Joan Rivers, John Candy, Rick Moranis in it. And it's like you can't imagine that movie without those actors. And it's just really... And in his best parodies, I think, is where he has the variety of performers and the talent that really just keeps you engaged and keeps you... And they all have sort of different... They all have different comedy rhythms that you're going off of, and seeing how all of those comedy, all of those rhythms just bounce off of one another is what makes it funny. Yeah, it's 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 as character based as it is uh, joke based. You know, it's not just there's not it's not just a bunch of miscellaneous performers throwing random gags or pop culture references at each other, like we were saying earlier. It, they're finely tuned characters and everyone has a clear perspective and a clear arc uh, that, that tracks along with all the comedy that's kind of laying on top of it. Yeah, and uh, I do want to take the moment here to uh, mention the wonderful John Morris, who's probably one of the best unsung heroes in terms of film composers of the past 50 years or so because his, his collaborations with Brooks on this, on Young Frankenstein, on Spaceballs, are are just absolutely, and on High Anxiety, where he's uh, poking fun at Bernard Herrmann and Hitchcock scores, and it's just, he's he's such a wonderful talent, and there's some just absolutely great songs in here, uh, from the title song to the Rock Ridge song, and to, like you said, Madeline Kahn singing, I'm so tired. And this this movie just has a wonderful soundtrack to it. Yeah, it really does. Oscar nominated title track too, which is which is another <laughs> thing that's kind of wild to consider. Uh a lot of the actual music, I think, too, I'm tired, the French mistake, things like that, were even written by Brooks. So kind of building off of the producers in the springtime for Hitler mm-hmm. of it all. You can you can see how Decades later, he went Tony's for, for the tuning the producers into a full-fledged Broadway musical. And then Young Frankenstein. And I've heard that he wants to do kind of a similar treatment for Blazing Saddles. And yeah. I don't know if he's going to actually get the chance to do that. But I, I mean, it's kind of halfway there already. Yeah. He, he did make a few sort of quasi-musicals in his, film, in his filmography. And, mm-hmm. and I think this just continues that. Yeah. But... Uh... So that that's I, I think that's really kind of all I have to say about Young uh, Blazing Saddles for now. Is there anything before we continue on to our next film? Is there anything more you want to say on it? There's not nothing specifically about Blazing Saddles. I think we we kind of did a nice overview of it. I did. We should probably throw it out there since it is 2021. There obviously are elements in this movie and all three that we're going to talk about that have not aged well uh you know speaking directly to you know not really so much the racism of it all because i think that's obviously part of what this movie is tackling directly but homophobia certainly is in all three of these uh, in varying degrees (laughs) and and so obviously this don't take our ringing endorsement of the movie as you know as an endorsement of of that kind of uh that kind of humor it just you know they were they were it was a different time we were we were a lot uh dumber yeah then. yeah we'll definitely uh, morons you know morons <laughs> yeah we'll definitely talk about that with our uh, third film in particular oh my gosh um, <laughs> so much oh it makes so, it uncomfortable so we are going to continue with 1980s airplane which i think next to uh young frankenstein and blazing Saddles, this is 
the, the those three are like the upper tier of the genre, and this is from the team of Z A Z, uh, David Zucker, Jim Abrams, Abraham, and uh, Jerry Zucker. Uh, made in 1980, and it is. Every time I see this movie, it is remarkable just how fast and furious the jokes come. Like, from the very beginning, it comes... Uh, I've not seen Zero Hour or any of the 70s disaster movies that this movie is obviously uh, making fun of, but I, I really do want to see Zero Hour at some point to see just how close to the mark this is as far as, like, a direct remake which is something that this almost from everything I've heard has in common with the next film with the final film we're going to talk about. Yeah, this is another one like yeah, uh, like Blazing Saddles that was before my time. I was born in 83, so these all came before and were referencing things from the decades prior to that. So yeah, like like you, I haven't seen, you know, air, what is it? Airports or uh any of those disaster movies that this is kind of obviously parodying but again to our earlier point that doesn't really matter it works yeah. you get that it's it's referencing you know a movie that my my wife and i love is uh down with love from 2003 which is a pretty direct parody of like the sex comedies of the 60s the rock hudson yeah. doris day mm -hmm. and i haven't seen any of those but i get the gist <laughs> of what they are enough from down with love that it's like it still works on its own yeah you you get that you get that it's parodying something and the story functions independently and that's really all you need. And with the airplane, it's a little different because the, the story in here is more of a loose thread uh, mm -hmm. as far as Robert Hayes' character just overcoming his fear of flying and, and getting back with Elaine. And uh, everything else is just, it, it, it wins you over just because of the sheer rat-a-tat-tat rhythm of the jokes, just, as you were saying, constantly. From minute one, I feel like there's a really strong joke, like probably every... 10 to 30 seconds, yeah. if not if not less. Like, I would love to see, you know, if there is a, 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 a world record of most jokes, like joke density per big screen, big screen comedy, I feel like Airplane would certainly be on the list, if not topping it, because it just, it, it's, it's really a, a, an exercise in what jokes could we come up with? Oh, okay, let's put all of them in this movie. Yeah. And just by sheer force of will, if something doesn't work for you, give it about 20 seconds, there'll be another joke coming around mm -hmm. the corner. And, and I think that's that's the kind of the magic of this movie, that that approach shouldn't work, and yet it does. Yeah. And I don't understand why, Brian. I don't get well, it, well, but it, it's such a delight. Yeah, and this, this one is great because of the fact that, I mean, even if, like you said, I mean, you and I, we... We haven't seen the disaster movies that Airplane specifically is referencing, but we've seen disaster movies in the intervening years. And so yeah. it, they all basically follow a very similar shape. And so Airplane gets that shape absolutely perfect, where it's like you're setting up a couple of key characters, you're setting up a situation, and then all hell breaks loose. And what's funny about this one in particular is that the real crux of the disaster in this movie doesn't even come up until minute 36 of an 88-minute movie. But you don't even yeah, care yeah. because the movie's entertained you so much up until that point. 
there's so many characters you have to be acquainted with on the way there. There's obviously the main couple, and then you know the, the what what makes what makes the stakes so much fun is that there are so many stakes. It's literally everyone is food poisoned. You got the sick girl waiting for the heart transplant. You did like the, the you know it's so much going on. It, it, you know, mo I would assume most of these disaster movies it would be like the plane is out of gas. What are we gonna do? And this movie yeah. is the plane is going down, and everything else is happening. Everyone has their own <laughs> mini crisis uh, happening. Half the, half the passengers of the plane are offing themselves so they don't have to hear Robert Hayes tell his life story anymore. And these kind of recurring flashbacks too, which is one of the like one of the darker uh, running gags in this movie. And and honestly, that's probably my favorite rank act because of how dark <laughs> it is. Because of the fact that it's like, you know, Ted Stryker's is his his story is so his story is so melodramatic and dark about like how he met Elaine, how they how he went to the war, and it's hilarious to have the from years the eternity parody. You have the Saturday Night Fever parody in it, or. Yeah, Saturday Night Fever parody. Yeah. And and the fact is, it's like, then you have these scenes where it's like, oh, they're trying to put their life together after the war, and then it's like, but every time you cut back, especially after one that's really depressed, has a really depressing ending, you you see somebody trying to kill themselves. And it's, it, it is just <laughs> so, that, that has always been one of my, favorite running gags in this movie. I mean, even more than, you know, and Don't Call Me Shirley from Leslie Nielsen. It's like, that's funny, but it's like, it, what makes the thing with Stryker so funny is the fact that it's like, he's pouring his soul out to these people and his these people just can't take it. And Right. But I, I love that, I love that in the first few minutes, you've got the overhead jokes with the, You've got the the jokes with the people on the intercom going back and forth about the white zone, the red zone, and all that stuff. It becomes very personal, and then you have the and but you're also bringing introducing the characters that are going to be on this plane ride, this plane flight, this flight, and then you see them in the airport, and you've got the religious people trying to get people to convert, and they want to talk to them, and all of that stuff, and then you, you're you also introducing Elaine and Ted, played by Julia Julie Haggerty and Robert Hayes, and it's funny because those are really the two most established characters in the entire movie. They're the only ones with real depth in the movie, but there's so many others that we just we, we just appreciate throughout the way because of the broad strokes that ZAZ do in their writing of oh okay i understand what this character's purpose is and a lot of these actors that's kind of the the genius of of their casting here is that a lot of these actors like robert stack lloyd bridges peter graves were serious non-comedic actors yeah leslie nielsen had never done a comedy before this and leslie nielsen that the movies the naked gun movies that team him up with the Z with CAZ in the in, in the subsequent years those movies I grew up with in a in a huge way those were huge movies for me as a yeah. kid the naked gun films yeah. and I saw those many many times before I ever even saw airplane so I think it's it's a testament to again the legacy of this movie that that it, it spun off into so many different directions starting with Leslie Nielsen and the, the don't call me Shirley 
gag is obviously the most well-known to the point that the D- D- DVD I have is the Don't Call Me Shirley edition. Same here. <laughs> so they like really lean it. Yeah, see, they really lean into that. But it's just the the sheer breadth of types of comedy that they have in here. We mentioned some of the dark humor already. Uh, the the fourth wall breaking with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Mm-hmm. You have kind of the the wordplay and puns that I, that I, oh, as, as they, that really hit the writer in me. The things like oh you know. Um, Oh, blah, 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 something about the hospital. And I was like, what's that? It's a big building with patients, but we don't have time for that right now. <laughs> Things like that. Like, all to, um, it's an, t- t- what's the thing he says? Uh, it's an, that's, plus, it's an entirely different type of flying altogether. <laughs> it's an entirely different type of flying. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like, I live for that. But I, I don't know if it's now, more now that I'm older and I'm a dad too, that those kinds of things really resonate. But man, I, I love me a good pun. It's it's uh, it's also the Muppet fan in me, I think, too, because mm-hmm. they into that kind of humor so much over the yeah. years. No, and I was, you know, and I was I was big into the Muppets growing up too. And yeah, I mean, it is very much in a, its own way. It's the same type of humor. It's the same type yeah. of wordplay. It's the same type of just puns and all of that stuff. And you know, it, it's funny that like some of some of the thing, even some of the things like. I didn't understand exactly why Peter Graves asking Joey if he likes movies about gladiators, if he likes movies, has he ever been in a Turkish prison? I didn't necessarily understand why that was funny when I was a kid. I just knew it was funny because it was such an absurd thing. Now, I, now I'm more familiar with like movies about gladiators. And I sort of understand the implications that Peter Graves is making in those questions and it's funnier still because of the fact that it's such an absurd thing. I mean, it it is questionable to a large degree because of what it implies, but right. you're still not necessarily thinking about that. And I mean, and yeah, having Kareem Abdul-Jabbar be the co-pilot is hilarious. And uh, what's the vector, Victor, Roger, and... Uh, Clint, yeah, Captain Clint's Over. Clint's, yeah, it was. It, oh it's God, all hilarious. Yeah. Uh, you know, <clears throat> you know, he's on the phone with the Mayo Clinic, and you know, the 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 clinic has all the jars of mayo to it. And then I I think one of my favorite ones that I didn't wouldn't have gotten necessarily as a kid, but certainly do get as a as an adult was when the uh, is when the kid is in the suit is asking if the girl if he can sit next to her and it's like hey do you want some coffee do you want anything in your coffee it's like no i like my coffee black like i like my men and it's like <laughs> why the and i wouldn't have gotten that growing up but it's like i get it now and it's hilarious yeah yeah it's it is every type of humor that's what i was saying earlier like it's literally every kind of comedy you can imagine is in this thing. And mm-hmm. a lot of that is inappropriate as we, as we were kind of talking about. But what really I think has helped it stand the test of time is that one, there is every, something for everyone. And two, you, can, you know that the people behind this, it's, it's, my, it's my favorite kind of thing, which is a, a movie that seems silly and ridiculous and frivolous, but you know behind the scenes, there's a real intelligence and there's a real smart, a t- uh, smart humor and smart approach to this kind of like that these writers 
CAZ knows exactly what kind of movie they're crafting. Everything is meticulously timed. You know, I actually listened to, in preparation for this episode, listened to a little bit of the commentary, and they're talking about how there's almost no improvisation in this movie. Like, they follow the script religiously. This thing was so fine-tuned that it's nothing that happens in it is by accident. And that's that's one of my favorite things. Like, I feel like most pair, a lot of parody films, the best ones especially, are kind of deceptive and that they seem silly and ridiculous until you dig a little deeper and you're like, oh, wow, they really, there's a lot of work that went into this and mm-hmm. like a lot of ingenuity and a lot of multiple, I think they said on the commentary, like 30 drafts. Like there's a lot of work and, and thought that goes into every little bit of humor, every little gag and timing everything just right and and having it all fit together. So it's not just literally throwing everything on the wall, even though it feels that way. Uh, that makes it easier for you as a viewer to get swept up in it because everything feels so chaotic in, in a wild and over-the-top way, but it's there is a steady hand at the wheel. Ironically, as there, as there isn't one in the movie, <laughs> except for Otto, I guess, at some point. Um, but, but yeah, I think that's what really stands out. Every time I watch I'm like, Man, this thing is like this thing is a, a masterpiece of this kind of comedy. Like this, yeah. this in Blazing Side, like you were saying, those three are are essentially the gold standard because they're unimpeachable. Even the elements of it that haven't aged well, it's like you have to kind of give it some slack because of when it was released and things like that. But there's so much in it that works that every people have spent decades trying to match that level of comedy and failed miserably most of the time. Yeah, and the you've got the and one another one of my favorite gags. I mean, you I could basically everything could be considered a favorite gag in this movie, yeah. honestly. But like when when the stewardess is singing and the obviously the IV comes out of the little girl and it is so funny how nobody reacts the first time that happens. And it's like they're yeah. just enjoying the song. Even the mother doesn't recognize it. Mo- Not at first, yeah. <laughs> she has to she has to put in her own IV, and then it's when it goes back and hits the mother that it's like, oh crap. <laughs> it's like, oh hey, that's what's going on. But yeah, uh, scenes scenes like that are just and then the people lining up to uh try to subdue the hysterical <laughs> woman, and it's like each each thing that the person is bringing back is progressively more serious. And yeah, it's it's I would not have guessed that the character of Johnny, played by Steven Stucker, was written that way on the page. I would guess there was some improvisation in some of those scenes, but like, and one of my favorite lines of his is, and Leon is getting larger. And so the way <laughs> he emphasizes the larger, along with everything, along with the physical performance, it, it's just so everything it's so controlled and the fact that there's such control in that movie is just remarkable because you really have to if you're gonna have that many that many jokes hitting people at that rate yeah yeah Uh, uh, and to speak to the legacy of it just not, not to bring up seth MacFarlane again real fast like I used to be a, I was a really big fan of Family Guy and I didn't see this movie until ludicrously late in life. But when I eventually really, like I saw bits and pieces over the years, but when I eventually sat down and really focused on it, I was like, 
oh my God, everything, every five minutes in this movie is something that Family Guy has just basically straight up ripped off, yeah. uh, ripped off and, <laughs> and thrown like, uh, I think Quagmire does the, the getting larger thing in, in one of the Star Wars Family Guy episodes or something. Like so much of it, I've just seen copy and pasted into that, that context and seeing it now, I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, this has had such a, a huge seismic impact on everyone working in comedy ever since that it just mm. burns into their head that they're just like, well, let's just riff on airplane because everybody knows airplane. And uh, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's one of those things that like, if we, if we start naming standout gags, I feel like that will be the whole episode because I'm looking at, I to kind of refresh my memory. I brought up the IMDB quotes page and it's like so long. It feels like the entire script is on here, but there's a lot of things like, uh, would you like something to read? Do you have anything light? How about this leaflet? I miss Jewish sports legend. Things like that. I was like, come on, man. So good. <laughs> yeah. It's it's so smart. Um, it's so smart. Yeah, it is. And uh, you know, I mean, Z, you know, Z-A-Z is it's funny because I mean, they started off with this basically doing more direct type of parodies of specific movies. I mean, we talked about this. This is essentially a comedic remake of Zero Hour. I mean, so much so right. that they had to buy the right license the rights to it in order to actually get this to uh in order to make this movie. Uh they basically had Paramount basically had to give them permission to get the rights to Zero Hour in order to do this. But um ZAZ, you know, they they did this, then they did Police Squad on TV which the six episodes of Police Squad are absolutely wonderful. And it's funny to see how yes, different are. of a series that is to the Naked Gun movies. And it's like there's, you can, because of, and I guess it's because of the fact that, I mean, obviously you're dealing with half an hour episodes as opposed to 90 minute movies. Like there's, it's so much more, it, it's so much more tight knit in the, series than it is in the movies. I mean, I enjoy the I enjoy at least the first two Naked Gun movies. I haven't seen 33 and a third in a while. But I mean, I, I do remember liking the second one. And yeah, I do really enjoy the first Naked Gun. And then they did Hot Shot, the Hot Shots movies, which are essentially, yep. you know, more direct parodies. And I mean, it's funny because them and Brooks essentially went more and more towards very specific type of mashup movie parodies and then uh by by the 90s unfortunately well okay david sucker did the jerry david sucker jerry sucker did basketball uh that was david sucker yeah which i i have always really enjoyed i i i thought that was a as as a sports movie fan i love how that parodies sports movies and um i've always enjoyed that but i mean by that point like you know the parody genre had gone sort of it sort of gone stale and uh you know it's like they the 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 jokes weren't quite as funny the joke the the types of jokes i mean a lot of them start leslie nielsen who did spy hard who did uh wrongfully wrongfully accused, accused is, i think yeah yeah which it was not that good of a movie spy hard was okay um, but yeah, I mean, and, but by that point, it's like we were starting to see a trend where the parodies were getting less and less pointed 
and they were just they were starting to trade more in just throwing as many uh, gags about movie different movies, just throwing different movies in a blender and uh, seeing what stuck. And uh, I think that would be a good... T and, like, the last Zucker movie I saw was An American Carol, which was just a completely dreadful movie. And that was in 2008. That yeah. was such a terrible movie. Uh, <laughs> you know. Well, uh, I think... In the 90s, like you were saying, to, to, to kind of wrap into and lead into the, the, the third movie we're going to talk about, I guess, uh, is it, it was just kind of, oh, let's do a parody version of, you know, of The Godfather. Yeah. Or, and they had, you know, ZAZ did Mafia, which is yeah. not a very good movie. Or, no. or Jim Abrams, at least, did Mafia. And, like, uh, they were all those straight-to-video ones, a lot of them with, like, Dom DeLuise's Silence of the Hams. And then mm. there was... Fatal Instinct, which was like a basic instinct ripoff, and and it really kind of just they they killed it all. <laughs> they really yeah. killed it. Uh, I, I think like mid to late '90s, it just really died out until the third movie that we talked about that we're going to talk about uh, kind of turned it around. And then ZAZ, you know, David Zucker took kind of took the reins of that franchise yeah. a few years <laughs> later in in the early 2000s. So it's it really kind of comes full circle in a in a very bizarre kind of way. Yeah, and I, I will say, we're, we're talking about 90s parodies, and yeah, like, sort of how lazy. I will admit, I've always kind of been a fan of Load Weapon 1. Um, I, I do think that's a oh, successful yeah. that's one. A I, one. Think, I think part of the fact with that, though, is the fact that it's got this combination of Samuel L. Jackson, early Samuel L. Jackson, before anybody really knew who Samuel L. Jackson was, with Emilio Estevez, and the fact that they inhabit those characters so well. And uh, yeah, I, I yeah. think that's always been one of my favorite ones. And and uh, also, obviously, for me at least, the Austin Powers movies, which started yeah. in '97, huge movies for for my my childhood as well, uh, or my teenage years, I guess. At that point, mm -hmm. uh, Naked Gun, Austin Powers, these are franchises that really kind of helped hone and define my own sense of humor. So yeah. <laughs> I, that was for huge as well. So it was not that the nineties, it's not the nineties parodies were, were completely dead, but like this approach to them really kind of faded away and it needed, it needed a, a you know, a, a shift in the type of voices, I guess, that were behind mm. the camera. And so, and I will say it's like you, you mentioned some of the movies that sort of shape your sensibilities your, in terms of, comedy and stuff. Mine certainly were shaped by, like, uh, Airplane by Naked Gun by Young Frankenstein as well. And I mean, you know, it's like those are movies that were formative for me in sort of understanding what I enjoyed in comedy. Uh, so we talked about Spy Hard. We mentioned Spy Hard earlier. It was one of the films, it was one of the first product projects that had the names of Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer on it. And that brings us to our third movie, which was brought to the screen by the Wayans Brothers and directed by Keenan Ivory Wayans, uh, 2000 Scary Movie, which was one of the biggest unexpected hits of the 2000 movie year. And I'm not entirely sure if that was a good thing or not. <laughs> uh, I, I will say, I, I will say, I want, I want to give a shout out to Keenan Ivory Williams because one of the movies that came to my head when it occurred to me that, and I do think that at his best, Keenan Ivory Williams is up there with ZAZ and Mel Brooks in terms of being able to do parody. And I will give a right. glad shout out to I'm going to get you sucker. 
which is absolutely wonderful if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I actually haven't. I've seen <laughs> Don't Be a Menace to South Central, and I've seen, shockingly, all the scary movies. I actually yeah. finally watched five <laughs> Like a couple months ago, and I was like, wow, that was a waste of 80 minutes. Yeah. Because, um, boy, my goodness. Uh, they And to be fair, the Wayans were no longer involved with it at that no, point. That was no. somebody completely different. No, I think he, it was Malcolm D. Lee. Like, yeah. Something was. came on at that point who who had done Undercover Brother, which is another parody movie that yeah. I, I quite enjoy. I think is underrated. Uh, but, yeah, scary movie. The reason that I, it feels... It, even though it was a huge hit, as you mentioned, it still feels, and, and it was my idea for us to talk about it, it feels, feels sacrilegious to bring it up in the same conversation with Airplane and Blazing Saddles, but it, it did kind of shape everything that happened after this. As yeah. you mentioned, Friedberg and Seltzer, and then they went on and did, you know, the date movie, an epic movie. Like this, the team, the people that worked on this movie worked on pretty much every big parody movie of the 2000s. And yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think, I think even not another teen movie sprung out of, of one of the writers of this film, mm -hmm. uh, which I'd say is probably one of the better ones from this era as yeah. well. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wild ride, the scary movie <laughs> franchise in general. But I think yeah. this first one, yeah, completely made the career of Anna Ferris, who nobody had heard of until mm -hmm. that movie, completely revitalized the parody genre, uh, which is weird because it's, its main parody is of Scream, which is also on the Wikipedia parody films list. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I, I think it's just like to reference another obviously parody film, did they just took the self-awareness and turned it up to 11? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was kind of their, their idea there, but, um, but you know, slasher films were huge in that, in the late nineties. So I understand the rationale. It's just, uh, yeah. it's the fact that they had such a specific target in mind, I think is why scary movie works as well as it does. And again, disclaimer, not nearly as well as the previous two movies, but yeah, I just want to make sure that's clear. No, I, I would definitely agree with that, but I mean, honestly, and, and you know, the thing is, it's like, I, one of the things I loved about scary movie, I'm a huge scream fan. I love this. I love scream when yeah, it came same. out in 1996. Um, but I, one of the things I really loved about Scary Movie and felt was hilarious, and I, I love that Shorty brings it up in the movie, is the fact that it's like, they, they literally rip, like, lines of dialogue, scenes of the movie from yeah. Scream. And I mean, granted, this only works because of the fact that they're both Dimension films, but the fact is, it's like, Kevin Williamson almost should get a story credit on Scary Movie because of how close it closely it follows Scary Movie in terms of, or how much Scary Movie follows uh, Scream in terms of plot mechanics, plot structure, and all of that. Um, you, you and, are, and one of the, the working title for Scream was Scary Movie, yeah. too. So that these two <laughs> movies are cosmically linked. Yeah. Um, yeah, Keenan. So yeah, the Wayans brothers were the Wayans at least as a creative team were essentially out of the picture after Scary Movie Two, which kind of fell off a cliff um, creatively. Mm -hmm. I was not a fan of Scary Movie Two. It's like I, the only ones I think are kind of worthwhile out of the Scary Movie franchise. I think are the first and the third one, and the third one's the first yes, one where 100%. David Zucker directs it, and uh, you know they have some really good parodies of like the ring and signs and all of that that I think is really good. 
Um, the second one just didn't work at all for me. This one is, you know, this one is kind of, you know, and as far as going to Friedberg and Seltzer, it's like they're they're basically like, you know, among at least considered among the worst filmmakers ever, ever at this point. It's like the only one of their spinoffs post scary movie I ever saw was Date Movie, and the main reason I saw that was because of Allison Hagen, who I love from right. Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Amer- in American Pie. But um, yeah, this one is. This one is a tipping point because of the fact that as even though we've seen vulgarity or heard vulgarity in Blazing Sows and in Airplane, this was made post There's Something About Mary. And as such, comedy was, the bar was continually to be raised by mainstream comedies in terms of how vulgar you could push it. I don't know that there's I don't even think there's something about Mary goes as far in vulgarity as Scary Movie does. Not at all. <laughs> and not I, at all. How not at all. So got, much. How how this movie got an R rating just baffles me watching it again this morning. Yeah, it's it, there are things in this movie that are so uh, raunchy and graphic that I don't want to describe them on your podcast because <laughs> I don't want to hear those words coming out of my mouth yeah. uh, on the air. <laughs> Just because, I, I mean, it's, it, and that's the other thing. Like, I like the parody elements of it, but some of the, the raunch is so aggressively in your face with how, how gross or how shocking or how yeah. offensive it thinks it is that it, it kind of actually turns me off a little bit yeah. to the movie. Uh, it's and that's why I gravitate way more towards the third movie, mm-hmm. which has a little bit of that, but it's PG thirteen and it's yeah. more that that Zucker style comedy where you know it's more playful, it's more about like the absurdist humor and and um, less about the on screen uh, <laughs> the on screen you know nudity or raunch or fluids or whatever yeah uh it's not it's not really it doesn't really care about all of that it's more like giving Anna Ferris some silly stuff to play and then you know Regina uh Regina Hall I think it brings a lot to these movies including this one I think her her scene in the movie theater is probably one of the one of the more clever gags uh in the first scary movie oh I uh, it, and, and so still, I, it still slays me how hilarious that scene yeah. is and how much and how it twists, I mean, obviously it's based off of, it's inspired by the scene <laughs> at the front of the screen too, but at the same time, yeah. it's also making fun of people who talk at movies. And it basically yes. gives you the just movie justice that, like, basically anybody who's ever tried to sit through a movie where obnoxious people are talking at the screen, it gives you that movie justice that you so want to see some people do get in in real life when they're talking at a screen. <laughs> I mean, Grant, I'm not advocating violence in movie theaters, believe me, but at the same time, it no, th- that scene in particular just absolutely slays me every time. And the fact that Shakespeare in Love is the movie that they're that they're watching and it's just so hilarious to and I one of the things I noticed this time out watching it is that it's funny how some of the things she's saying are applicable like to horror movies, but she's talking about it to this yeah. Oscar-winning Oscar romance movie. 
And it's just so <laughs> hilarious. But yeah, I mean, I, I if think you're it, gonna, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think you're right though. Like this movie, and really the third movie, when they're doing direct parodies of movies, is I think when they're when they're funniest, and and when when they're more successful. And I I think especially the scene with uh, Chan Elizabeth as Buffy. You know, quote, sort of doing the parody of the I Know What You Did Last Summer scene where she's on stage and she's doing the dramatic reading and she's seeing her <laughs> boyfriend murdered. I, I think that's hilarious. And it, it occurred to me that it's like, this is, I, this is probably one of the few movies that really gave Shan Elizabeth something interesting to play comedically as opposed to just keeping her as like a... As, as a sexy woman. And it's like, I, you kind of right. see that in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back as well with another movie that really has not aged well in terms of some of its humor. But, um, yeah, and I mean, it's the scenes that are basically rooted in the characters. And Anna Ferris is just wonderful in this movie. And, I mean, my favorite scene, and I, I love this, I love the ghost face in this movie. I really do love the ghost face. It's always cracked me up, and uh, you know, it's as it's as iconic a spoof of a villain as Ghostface is a villain in Scream. And I, my one of my favorite scenes continues to be where like he's on the phone with uh, Cindy, and it's like, "Where are you?" And it's like, uh, "You're behind the couch," and you know, I can see you. And then she's, Dave's <laughs> like, "Oh, turn around, turn around, so I can so I can try hide again." And it that that scene is it's such a stupid scene, but it's also hilarious. Yeah, I mean, if it's rude in the characters or in direct parodies of movies, I mean, I'm, the the Matrix movies don't the Matrix parody here doesn't really work. It's just an absurd thing to add. But it was funny that it came out like barely a year after the original Matrix came out. But yeah, I mean, when it, it, it's when they do parodies, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's for the most part. That's what I was saying earlier. Like, it, for the most part, it stays focused on those slasher, the slasher genres, like that wave of mostly Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. Then you get Blair Witch Project thrown in there, mm -hmm. obviously, which came out the year before. Also, uh, Matrix, I think it was just like everyone was Shrek would do it the next yeah. year. Like yeah. that was the the thing. <laughs> Kung Pao in two thousand two, another. Another like over the top ridiculous uh, parody movie of martial arts films from the seventies, and then uh, you get the Usual Suspects parody in mm -hmm. this one at the end too. There's there's little bits of that, and you have that lovely fourth wall breaking thing where Marlon Way, uh, not Marlon Way, Sean Wayans character Ray snaps, and he's like he's like um, canceling TV. You know, TV <laughs> watching TV doesn't create sick of killers. Canceling TV shows does, and the Wayans Brothers was a good show. <laughs> we didn't even get a final episode like. Things like that, that's, that was very much felt like kind of inspired in a way by the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar moment where they're like, no, no, I'm this character. And then he yeah. gets all defensive about his <laughs> his his basketball record. Uh, it kind of felt a little bit like that in a way. And, and, mm -hmm. I, and there are moments, there are inspired moments in this moment, in this movie. I think when they don't rely so much on the uh, on the shock value of of the, you yeah. know, the love scene with Cindy and, and uh, 
Bobby, I think, is one example, the way that that goes. And I'm like, oh, come on. You can you, you can skip some of this. Yeah. You didn't really need to go that far. But it's just that's the kind of humor that they were leaning into. And that, that it, it feels like a mishmash of, of comedic tones that doesn't quite work. It's way more erratic than the other two movies we were talking mm-hmm. about. But influential all the same. And, and you know, I think after this, you still see, even now, uh, Marlon Wayans is doing the... He did the haunted house. He did the haunted house too. He did Fifty Shades of Black. Like he's still doing parody movies yeah. off the back of Scary Movie, just mm-hmm. like on his own, you know, on his own franchise that he started like, years later. So it's yeah, it's 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 a mixed bag, but I think it's it's one that's hard to dismiss whole cloth just because it was so pivotal for the genre, and because mm-hmm. there are a lot of things about it that do work. Yeah. Uh, even in the second one, I think there are some stuff that Anna Ferris does that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a little bit of Tim Curry in there, and there's a few like kind of. St- it's more. It's way more all over the place than than this one. Yeah. But there's there's like little there's flickers of of uh, of you know intelligent comedy in there of like things that actually stand out. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorites that I like to reference in in Scary Movie Two is when she's she's saying about how the the cat was possessed. And uh, she has like this on a fair Cindy has this whole like battle with the cat, like like a boxing match, basically. And so she's telling the professor afterwards about, oh, this cat is possessed or whatever. She's like, I'm not crazy. And then for no reason, she turns her way and just like ah, runs out of the room with her arms in the air, which I think she does at one point in this movie as well. Yeah. So I guess that was kind of a callback to that. That that little things like that, like any of the good stuff that comes out in two or four, both of which are not, not this is not a recommendation, uh, are because of Anna Ferris and yeah. Regina Hall. And that's why when you get to five and they're not even in it, I'm just like, oh boy. I watched it out of completionism, basically. Like, oh my God, I, I guess I should tie that off this franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that point, it's so bereft of ideas that it's just like a shell of its former self. And even the original film wasn't like a classic to begin with. It's kind of, yeah, it's worth watching, but it's it's a soft recommend. Not like if you haven't seen Airplane, find a copy of Airplane and watch Airplane now because <laughs> right. you're missing out on one of the the best comedies of all time. Uh, it's not not quite to that level, but there's there's definitely plenty of stuff to enjoy here. Yeah, and uh, I mean Anna Fair having making Anna Fair's the lead in here and really kind of allowing audiences to discover her is probably the biggest. Thing to recommend Scary Movie for because she is really good at she she is really good and she's almost she's she's kind of believable playing that Nev Campbell role from Scream yeah. and uh, you can but with a wink and you can kind of see but yeah you're you're right as far as the the tone of the comedy is just really all over the place and it's, you know this this is one of those scenes where this is one of those movies where you have like just random pop culture coming out, like the WhatsApp phone conversation, which granted, I love. I think <laughs> yeah. it's hilarious. But um, you know, and yeah, it's Mar- because of the way the mask changes, yeah. I think. Yeah, that that's the way is the exactly mask changes it. and it's different but, expressions. But but the thing is, it's like Ghostface in this movie, their Ghostface has such a weird and weird attitude where it's like he's in on the joke and he just and I love where like he's he's hitting the aquarium bong with them and they're doing the rapping afterwards and like I I love his rap where it's like he basically just starts killing everybody in there and uh yeah Marlon this this was a weird year for Marlon Wayans because 
I mean, you mentioned <laughs> it, the fact that he did, he's done parodies after. And, you know, in this year, he did Scary Movie and then he did Requiem for a Dream, which I think is, suffice to say, are two completely opposite parts of the film per equate of the film spectrum. Like, you've got one that's really dark and gritty and just unsettling and disturbing. And then you've got Scary Movie, which is just silly and ridiculous. And he's so effective in both <laughs> of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I totally agree. It's it's kind of a it's it's a strange comparison, but yeah, that's what that's what Marlon Wayans was up to that year. Uh both shocking and and uh, disturbing in completely different ways. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, and and I mean I really don't have a whole lot more to say about scary movie. I mean, I will say it's like, you know. I, thinking about now, like we were, we were talking about like gay jokes and you know homo, homophobic jokes, and it's like there's some really rough ones in this, and it's like especially with Miss Man, which is really oh, horrifying gosh. to watch now as far as uh, transgender jokes. It's like oh god, that's so unsettling, and it's just so. It's one of those scenes that really could have easily gotten lost and this movie like you could have cut in you wouldn't have been missing anything out of out of the movie yeah it's that one sequence too miss man is not really referenced before or after i yeah. don't think very much I, I don't even yeah uh and basically everything which just sean wayans his entire he's just his entire character the entire character of ray is basically a walking gay joke which is why it, you get that hilarious subversion at the end where yeah. uh, Bobby's like, oh, and Ray, and, and Ray, I'm gay, and so is Ray. He's like, I'm not gay. He's like, oh, I wanted to go shopping. Like, I, I love that moment. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's pretty much the only purpose of that character is to make constant, you know, constantly poke fun at the gay community. And yeah. again, watching it now, it's like, yikes. yeah, it, it not it really not a good look. Like a thud. I mean, you know, and and I mean, you know, it it's not parody film, but I mean, it well, it, it sort of is in its own way. It's it's you know kind of transgressive towards that genre. It's like I, I rewatched Con Air for the first time in a few years, and it's like the 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 cross dressing you know prisoner in in that movie is like oh this is so cringeworthy, and it's like you know I mean and like I said Jay and Silent Bob there's some there's some gay jokes in that movie that just don't sit well now, and it's like I I love that movie, but it's like. Oh, there are some tough jokes to take in that, and this this one probably is the roughest of all of them because of the because of Ray uh, Sean Wayne's character as well as Miss Man, and it's like again that Miss Man scene just doesn't need to be here. And I mean, you know, it's like I feel like you could have done something. I mean, I don't know, you know, as far as the the sex scene with her with Anne Ferris, where it's like you you have the pubic hair joke, and I I. And then obviously the 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 orgasm joke, which is just even. I mean, I I think if you lost one but kept the other, it might have worked. It's yeah, better. it's it's too much. And yeah. and then the orgasm joke they repeat in the second movie uh, as well. It just, it's just yeah, it's just overkill. I feel like, and it's weird that we're talking about movies from 1974. 1980 and 2000 and the one in 2000 has aged the poorest 
Yeah. Like, I don't even know how that's possible. Uh, it's just, it just goes whole, whole hog on the homophobic humor. I think that's yeah. what it is. It just, they like, le- like a good 30% of the humor in this movie, of the jokes in this movie are at the expense of the LGBTQ community. And yeah. I think it's, it's really egregious. Uh, that's not, I don't know. It's a, it's rough in that regard. There's yeah, a lot of is. other stuff that makes it worth watching, but it's, you have to kind of uh, go in knowing that it's going to be a heavy dose of, of all of that stuff mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, I think part of the reason that I think part of the reason that one didn't age as well is, I mean, obviously because of the specific jokes, but I mean, also because by that point parodies became something very different from what they start off with, with Mel Brooks and ZAZ, at least the modern era parodies. And it's like, I mean, in a way, you know, Mel Brooks and ZAZ kind of headed in that direction too, where they were just basically making fun of movies and having movie parodies, direct movie parodies, as opposed to trying to tell stories within the framework of parodying genre. And I mean, I think if you, if you're parodying a genre, I think it's easier for a movie to sustain than is if you're doing direct movie parodies. Now, I mean, Airplane is kind of an exception because, as we've said, it's essentially a remake, comedic remake of Zero Hour. But at the same time, if if you're a if you're somebody like us who has never seen those disaster airplane disaster movies, uh, you wouldn't know it. And I mean, you could just say, "Oh, well, it's a parody of disaster films." And I mean, it's a really great one because of the fact that it understands the shape of that genre. And um, yeah, I mean, by that point, by the time of Scary Movie, it's basically a genre that is just devoted entirely to movie parody. And the jokes that you're telling, you know, may not necessarily have anything to do with that particular movie. You're just trying to cram as many references in as possible. And that's, that's one of the problems with the genre in the past 20 years, and I think why movies like Shaun of the Dead, like Hot Fuzz, like MacGruber, and Undercover Brothers, another great example, um, and Walk Hard and Popstar succeed at because they're parodying genres while also essentially telling genuine stories. I mean, I, I think that's something that Scary Movie doesn't do that the other two do so very well. Yeah, I, there's, also, there's also a subset, to me at least, there's a subset of parody that it's, it's kind of, there's not even really a term for it, but it's like meta adaptations, I guess I'll call it. Like your Brady Bunch movies, your yeah. uh, 21 Jump Street, uh, even Starsky and Hutch, like adaptations of a property that has become outdated and so you adapt it in a way that it is a parody of itself uh i think that's kind of an interesting wrinkle that has formed in the, like since the 90s within the parody genre it's it's almost like um gremlins to the new batch is kind yeah. of a parody of gremlins in mm-hmm. a way and i think that's when movie when, when parody movies start to get self-reflexive i feel like there's a lot of room for exploration there yeah. Uh, but but I do think that a lot of the the big standouts in the last twenty years you've mentioned most of them 
I do think that, that that's pretty much a lot of the high points uh, that the genre has, has kind of refocused itself on specific, you know, specific types of movies as opposed to just, yeah, just the, the, the Friedberg and Seltzer, not to keep picking on them, but they, I mean, they kind of deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> With the Meet the Spartans epic movie disaster, they're just like, oh, you know, Jack Sparrow is going to show up in here. Some guy pretending to be Jack Sparrow so yeah. he can go savvy and then move on to the next scene. Uh, it's like that kind of thing uh, that I think was contributing to the downward spiral of parodies. And I'd say, yeah, I think things like Edgar Wright's movies, as you mentioned, it would even put The World's End in there, sort of. Mm -hmm. those, the Cornetto trilogy really functions as each of those is a parody of different genres. And maybe, yeah. you know, maybe those movies were kind of the turning point and kind of helping to re-inspire re filmmakers to go back and look at those classic parody movies, mm -hmm. see what worked and kind of hone that, that you know, that direction a little more. Because I, I do feel like we're slowly possibly seeing a little bit more of an uptick uptick in genres uh in the parody genre just because like those date movie style of comedy are they've kind of fizzled out by now and if they are being made they're like straight to the video kind of you know five dollar bin at walmart yeah. kind of deal at this point they're not they're not getting a major studio releases anymore right and i think that's that's the big difference yeah i mean it's funny one that isn't mentioned that i would actually say upon thinking about is kind of a parody you know but it's not mentioned on wikipedia it's like is dodgeball which is kind of a take on yeah. like which is another take on the sports genre but it's one that is telling its own story within that genre while also being funny and you know talladega nights is another one where it's like i would say that is kind of a parody of sports films uh the other guys is another one too and even even Anchorman, where it's like you're 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 parroting types of you're parroting ideas as opposed to specific movies, and I think that's that is ultimately I think where that that's I mean and I think people I think audiences click onto as the date movies as epic movies and disaster movies came out they realized that it's like oh those parodies those aren't funny those that type of parody just right. isn't funny because of fact that it's, all it's doing is just throwing references at you for no reason whatsoever other than to say hey see see what we're referencing here how how funny that is it, it just doesn't work yeah when you have a your twilight parody and it's just called vampires suck yeah or you have like the star the hungover games i mean things like that it's just like come on are you serious it, it, I, I think some of the some of the will ferrell stuff i feel like it it, it it's questionable to me whether that's satire or a parody i think that's you know we've we've kind of seen a little bit of, of blurring of that line but i think you know I, those are two to me those are two of the most difficult forms of comedy to do right and when it works it it really it really clicks as as we've said in the first two movies we talked about yeah. and you know slightly less so in the third one but i i think that there's a lot of material there to mine and you know, people like, like we said, the Lonely Island doing it with Popstar or the, the Wikipedia list has pretty much all the Sacha Baron Cohen movies. I don't know if I would consider those. See, those feel like satires to me. Yeah. These don't, those don't feel like parodies. I feel like that's where I'm, we're going to have, Brian, you and I are going to have to go through and edit this list because it's <laughs> yeah, this is a freaking mess. It's driving me nuts. Yeah. I'm looking through it and I'm like, I don't think that, I don't, you know, Princess Bride style. Like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. No, kind of thing. no, uh, not at all. <laughs> 
Yeah. The cable guy is not a parody. It's a satire, no. guys. I mean, you know, it's like if you're including the Christopher Guest movies, it's like you could almost at least consider maybe like Bo- maybe the Borat movies or Bruno. But yeah, like the right. like like uh, the dictator. They have the interview on there, which is like that's not that's not parody. What is that? Parody? It's that's just absurd. a comedy. Not everything that's funny <laughs> yeah. is a parody. Exactly. Um, but the fact is, it's like despite what Wikipedia says, although they do have some good ones on there, <laughs> it's like despite there what Wikipedia some. does, I do think we've given people a good a good look at what this genre does well. What what this genre does well as best. And what this genre could be, as well as sort of what it's become and sort of what it is, and we've given people a good idea of like, hey, these are movies to check out in this genre. If you want to get an idea of what this genre can be at its best. Totally. Absolutely. I, I think that's definitely the case. Yeah, and ultimately, it's like that's one of the things that I really wanted to do. When, when you brought up this idea, I really, I really latched onto it as, something that was enjoyable to talk about because of the fact that it's like this is this is the type of genre we don't really hear a whole lot about unless people are talking about a specific movie uh just on the larger perspective of this genre i think it's it, it is important to kind of shine a light on this one and cuz i think there's there's certainly an awful lot and the the three filmmakers it's like even if scary movie is not among the best things Keen Ivory Wayans has ever done. I I I think he is a I, I think he is a worthwhile filmmaker in that genre to explore. And I mean I, I do recommend people seeing uh I know what you or I'm gonna get you sucka because it's really a successful even if you've not seen a lot of black exploitation movies, it really does uh do a very good job of making a very funny movie in that style. And, um, you know, it, and I mean, honestly, another one that we talked about, what, which I would almost put in the uh, Edgar Wright, like, Hot Foot, Cornetto trilogy style of parodies. Although, I mean, you know, is Black Dynamite by Michael J. White. That is when a you, wonderful film. When you brought up I'm Gonna Get You Stucker and, and the... Uh, the black exploitation parody thing that, that I totally thought of Black Dynamite. Yeah, which is a, which is a movie kind of like Popstar that ar- arrived and nobody was talking about it, and then years later I started hearing about it all over the place. And I feel like that those movies are, are definitely need to be reevaluated. It's just as you you know, it, it's it's a, it's a genre that's really gotten diluted with so much crap yeah. that it's I think now cult, critics just outright dismiss it i'm like oh that's gonna be bad i'm like well there are a few that are worth that are worth taking a look at that are culturally significant you mm-hmm. know that are, are are kind of turning points within cinema and love it or hate it scary movie is that for comedies it was it made a, like 150 million it made a lot of money yeah. it was one of the highest grossing movies that year and it cost not very much it yeah. was it was a very cheap movie and the margin the profit margin was insane on it Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see wait 19 million dollar budget 278 million worldwide that's oh, no wonder yeah. they broke their their tagline and they made four sequels yeah you know it's <laughs> it, it was a, a a a big turn for the genre and i think there is there are is good work being done 
in that in parody. And I think people need to pay attention to it because as we said, with airplane blazing saddles, those two especially, there's, there's a lot of potential for this genre, for these types of movies to be great. And I don't, as someone who grew up with the Naked Gun movies, with the Austin Powers movies, with the work of Mel Brooks and, and ZAZ, it's, I don't want to see the, this genre completely you know, disappear. I think that, that we need to keep the fire going by spreading. And you, I think you're seeing that on film Twitter. Whenever everyone's, anybody tweets anything about Popstar, everybody's just like, oh my God, just re retweet, retweet. We're going to yeah. get the word out about Popstar because it's like one of the only ones in the last decade that people have really latched onto as, as how the genre can still be relevant to today's world. And uh, so, yeah, if people haven't seen the three movies we talked about, absolutely check those out, as well as Young Frankenstein, yeah. I think would be, we only didn't include it because we were, we were trying to limit it to three and we had a Mel Brooks, but I think yeah. those are, are easily, easy recommendations from us. No, and like I said, I, I think those three movies just really do a great job of showing the progression of the genre and showing different versions of, different variations of the genre, because it's like, you know, when people think of parodies, I mean, they obstinately think of your young Frankensteins, your airplanes, your um, the movies that are more directly parodying other movies. But at the same time, it's yeah. like you look at Blazing Saddles, which is more about genre than it is a specific movie. That you can't necessarily point to a specific John Wayne movie or John Ford movie that is being referenced here, and it's you do get a name check of Randolph Scott, which is very funny in the movie. But at the same time, it's it's also one of those things where it's like, it's it's so matter of fact. But I I love that this trio of movies is a a look at the evolution of the genre, and I think that's ultimately why why it had to be Blazing Saddles over to Young Frankenstein because as much as I love Young Frankenstein, it's kind of in the same vein of the other two movies more than it is Blazing Saddles. And Blazing Saddles is something unique, and I, I think it's, it is a great example of what can happen at the genre at its best. I mean, you can say that about a Airplane as well. I mean, you know, if, and, you know, it's just, it's sad because Scary Movie could have been that if it had been less vulgar, I think if they'd, toned, mm -hmm. I mean, we we both kind of agree. If they'd toned, if they'd taken out some of the vulgarity, I think the movie, you know, the movie would be better. Would still probably be problematic for some of the other things, but certainly, I mean, it didn't need to go as far as it did to be really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Robert, thank you very much for uh, joining me, and thank you for bringing up this, bring this topic to. Uh, my consideration it's like i i really like i said i wouldn't have considered this otherwise but you know because it, it's funny because i think about blazing saddles and airplane in perspective of my mother more and my movie diet growing up more than i do just the genre in general so i i appreciate you uh giving me a chance to really think about the genre deep down and really giving and and for us to be able to have this discussion about the genre as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's, it's a genre that's really, that's really near and dear to my, uh, my young cinematic uh, heart. 
And it's not one that's often talked about in, in this kind of critical lens. So I'm glad that we were, I'm glad you were down for it because this, these were really, as you said, these were really fun movies to go back and revisit and take a little bit of a closer look at uh, with, you know, with the 2021 perspective. Uh, and before we, before we uh, sign off, where can uh, people find you again on the web? So you can find me and all my uh, my multiple podcasts at crookedtable.com and on Twitter at crookedtable. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'd like to thank Robert for joining me on the podcast tonight to talk about parody films. That was a really fun discussion. And uh, I will be on his podcast. I'll be on one of his podcasts in the uh, coming months. And I look forward to sharing that discussion with you. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. As the summer goes along, I hope to continue to have some really fun discussions with you, uh, for you, and uh, you can check those out on the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel, on Google, Apple, and Spotify, as well as www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much. (laughs) 